As is true for other episodes of this show, which deal with current or political issues, it's important to note that the following discussion was recorded in May of 2016 and may not reflect the current state of geopolitical issues surrounding this topic. Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 143. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me today in the studio, we have a returning guest, Sam Whipple. Pleasure to be back, thanks. And it's great to have you back. As the title of the episode suggests, we are going to be discussing an article entitled Can Democracy Stop Terrorism? by F. Gregory Gauss III, published in Foreign Affairs Magazine in 2005. And to begin, the article actually opens with the sentence, The United States is engaged in what President George W. Bush has called a generational challenge to instill democracy in the Arab world. And as both a political science major and an American citizen who has lived through the Bush era, I would really love to know what you think about that statement, because it sparked a number of thoughts in me. Yeah, it is an interesting statement, and very interesting that President Bush would choose to put it in those specific terms, a generational challenge. I think it's particularly interesting because, as Gauss will go on to describe in the article, the challenges may be framed in the wrong way. The the problem is not necessarily democracy or the absence thereof in the Middle East, though it is certainly a political problem. And that gets to one of the heart of the problems that we're seeing with terrorism abroad as well, is that the United States seems to be interested in a military solution to what is fundamentally a political problem. And there are a number of ways to come at this, but I think that the way that President Bush is framing it here in terms of this generational challenge is certainly something that is echoed in the phrasing of the war on terror, that it's a war on an idea rather than any specific country, individual, or entity, though Osama bin Laden may have come close to being the individual we were at war with. But at the same time, that generational challenge points to the fact that it's a war of ideas, first of all. It is an ongoing one, one that I think that generational word reflects not only the fact that it has been going on, but that it likely will continue to go on. And it's interesting because it also points to a recognition of the fact that this is not a problem that we're going to solve, certainly overnight, perhaps not even within the 10 years after this article was written, which I think is particularly interesting that we still find ourselves mired in this situation abroad, even 10 years after this article was published. I still think it's really important you bring this article to the table because one of the other things Gauss points out is that the literature on the relationship between democracy and terrorism, whether it's terrorism occurring within democracies, democracies being the target of terrorism, or some sort of interaction thereof, is fairly scant. There's not a lot of information out there as to whether or not promoting democracy can actually stop terrorism and whether or not that's really the fundamental question. But like I said, I think that it's certainly a political problem. And President Bush's phrase moves in that direction, but there's a lot more to unpack there. What do you think about that? I had a similar approach, and I think especially the idea of a generational challenge, which is so politically vague, and I think intentionally so, to incorporate as many Americans in this issue as possible, bothers me with its rhetoric. Because looking at our generation, I think there are a number of things that we must 
confront in our lives, what our relationship is going to be with technology, how we might repair the educational system, how we might worry about the environment, and various other ideas and issues that come up in our daily lives, which is not to say that terrorism is not a problem, but as you and I said in an earlier episode, largely what terrorism promotes is an excessive and heavily emotional response to terrorism. And again, I'm not saying that it is not an issue, but in the way we respond to it, I think we inadvertently help terrorists in their aims often, whether we think we are or not. And furthermore, my main issue is less in Bush's statement that something out there is a generational challenge, and more so that in his eyes, said challenge is to instill democracy in the Arab world. One, It's not anyone's job to instill any political system anywhere, I would argue, democracy or otherwise, but especially internationally. And I'm sure there are economists or other political theorists who would say, well, that's not entirely true. Sometimes for the stability or efficiency of an international world, you do need to step into other countries and intervene. But I would say there are limits and something feels wrong when a nation has established itself to dictate whether you have political, military, economic power, anything. I don't feel that justifies that sort of rhetoric. And even beyond that, this homogenized statement about an Arab world, which I don't necessarily believe in. They may all share the Arabic language, but their cultures are substantially varied. Their approach to politics are also varied. And so this belief by Bush, an American president, that there is this unified mass which needs to be implanted with democracy just doesn't sit right with me. And I also appreciate what you said about the American approach being a military solution to a political problem, which I'm sure some people might find overly simplified. But in the article, Gauss notes that citizens in Arab nations do not find fault with American ideals necessarily, but with the implementation of American policy in the Middle East. And I think the great irony there is that certain Americans believe, and I don't fall on their side of the coin, that if we can just show other nations how great American democracy is, and let's be honest, how great we believe ourselves to be, that they will not fall in line, which sounds very dictatorial, but that they will believe in our greatness as we do. And I don't feel that way. And I don't know that everyone would articulate it as such, but when you barge into a country with military might, there is an underlying presumption that you have a right to do so, not only because of your strength, but in the psychological justification that accompanies an advanced military nation. I think there is often the belief, as with various political systems, that you are not simply strong, but that your strength comes from a presupposed right to be so strong. You would never attribute your success to happenstance or luck. It's always that America is strong because of its ideals. And if we can spread those around the world, we will make the world a better place. And at the basis of my criticism of America is this presumption that our system works best for everyone. And I think this most recent presidential election shows that there are holes in every political system, and some may work better than others, but to believe in a certain political infallibility doesn't sit well with me. And I know that I went off on a tangent regarding democracy there, but do you have any thoughts related to what I've said? I think you're absolutely right. And especially with regards to our last presidential election, you could see with the rise of Donald Trump that democracy is certainly not always necessarily favorable to the most professional kind of government, or at least that would be my argument about Donald Trump. And the other thing that Gauss points out in the article, of course, is that the thinking seems to be that the promotion of democracy will somehow lead 
to a government that is favorable to U.S. interests. But that's certainly no guarantee. It seems completely likely that a government that emerged in a country like Iraq or Afghanistan could just as easily be favorable to manipulation by Islamist parties who see a different vision for their country, and one that is, like you said, primarily engaged in rebuking U.S. foreign policy and encroachment. Part of the reason that I think this political problem is so important, and it gets back to this idea of a generational challenge and how you mentioned the U.S. sort of taking on that mantle, this may be a new problem for us that's perhaps brought to light by 9-11, but by no means is this a new future generational challenge for any of the countries in the Middle East that have been dealing with rampant political issues since the beginning of the 19th and 20th centuries, even moving into the present day. What we see is a growing turmoil when it comes to the political direction of many of these countries, that failures in terms of policy have given many individuals in the Middle East a growing disillusionment with what they see as a need to adopt Western practices of government and help promote freedoms, democracy, whatever those things may mean to them. But they have failed in so many places because that transplant is not nearly as easy or convenient as it sounds. I heard a historian, a prominent historian once say, to promote democracy in the Middle East was futile because what we actually needed to promote was government. And you see in many cases with incidents of terrorism that, in fact, terrorist organizations that can build up a substantial enough movement and take over certain strongholds are actually able to provide things that many individuals simply didn't have before. Social services, food and water, basic health care, things that people are looking for but their government has been unable to provide. Because in so many of these places, you've seen rampant turmoil, military authorities taking over. And that makes it incredibly difficult for many people to believe in what they see as a Western version of government. And that makes not only changing of hearts and minds all that much more difficult, but that transition, that political change is certainly difficult internally, let alone when it's trying to be done by what many people see, as Gauss points out in the article, as an aggressive foreign government, as the U.S. seems to be to many people. And to me, a very prominent current in the article combats this illusion that quote-unquote free nations are less susceptible to terrorist attacks than quote-unquote non-free nations. And between 2000 and 2003, according to the State Department's annual Patterns of Global Terrorism report, 269 major terrorist incidents occurred around the world in countries classified as free by Freedom House. 119 in partly free countries, and 138 in quote-unquote non-free countries. And Gauss even goes on to compare India and China, one very vibrant and strong democracy with the world's most populous authoritarian state. And between 2000 and 2003, there were 203 terrorist attacks in India and none in China, which if anything, taken alone and out of context, which is not something I advise, This indicates that freedom might be more permissive of certain terrorist attacks, and the article also notes very crucially that Western press rarely reports on homegrown terrorists and instead focuses on those who are foreign, those who are other. These are foreign terrorist attacks on domestic soil, and that's simply not the case. Many individuals in recent years in France and England may have been radicalized abroad or taught various techniques and tactics abroad, but were born, raised, and grew up in the countries they ended up attacking. 
And I'd really love to know what you think about the fact that we rarely examine these gray areas and it seems as a globe, or at least most prominently in the West, tend to discuss this issue of terrorism as a very black and white concept. Yeah, it's a really important point, and I think it speaks to an unfortunate tendency that we have, whether that be among major news outlets or in the way that we cover terrorist incidents, to in some ways pathologize foreign actors of terrorism, suggesting that they are a product either of a political system that is anti-US in any kind of way, or even worse, in a religious context, as we've seen with many people who are willing to demonize the religion of Islam as being part and parcel of what makes a terrorist a terrorist. And that is, of course, wrong, especially when we look at the number of people who, even in the US, having identified with the beliefs of foreign terrorist actors, we simply dismiss as crazy, delusional. I think there's a willingness to accept that they are a part of the political community and that they have simply erred from whatever our common shared beliefs are, rather than believing that they in some way see us as antagonistic toward them. And I think there's a real disconnect there. One other thing I wanted to bring up in relation to your point about India and China I think that statistic is fascinating. And if I had to guess, I might say that it points to something about the logic of terrorism itself. My sense is that we often think about terrorism as being targeted towards governments, that terrorist incidents, particularly 9-11, perhaps the Oklahoma City bombings, that they're directed at a political system, that they're directed at members of government that they in some ways aspire to force change, whatever their version of change may be. But I think, in fact, in many ways, terrorist incidents aim at people, at the members of a country. And the correlation between, say, a free country and terrorist incidents, in my mind, might have more to do with the fact that a terrorist sees more that they can gain not only from the shock value, but from the political connotation of their action within a free country where people have more power, more say in their own government, and actually have a means of addressing the issues they see as important. Terrorist incidents really try and drive that change through people, which is in some ways maybe a backwards way of looking at it, but actually a really interesting and I think often overlooked aspect of terrorism. Do you think there's something to that? There have been a number of ideas that have changed my mind and opened my mind on this show, but what you've just said resonates with me on a very profound level because it almost makes me believe that democracy is a key weakness in fighting terrorism because it makes me believe that as long as people are democratic, and I do believe democracy is often viable and works for many people, although not all, those people will be empowered to act by their democratic beliefs and the democratic system which would appear to many to be a good thing, and that is often a belief that I hold, but if they are encouraged by their fear, motivated by an anxiety about terrorism, and as we've discussed in a previous episode about terrorism, do not acknowledge the statistical improbability of terrorism, then they might submit to a government that over-budgets to respond to terrorism. They may submit to a certain presidential candidate who makes sweeping claims about all Muslims in a country, which is not to say that democracy is a bad thing, but it does curiously allow for a very specific message to be spread, not even necessarily by the media, but by the people. Because in our nation, we are told that the individual is powerful, not only in American politics, but in our cultural American dream that you, the individual, can do it 
and usually it refers to financial or personal success, but it can also, of course, refer to emotional and political response. And so I think that to make the comparison to China, where the individual still operates in a system but serves the system more than the system might serve the individual, even if there was political discontent or personal grievances that citizens felt, the voice of the individual is censored in some way, or at least limited, where American citizens, as I think is evident in this podcast, are allowed to more freely share their ideas and beliefs. And so I'd really love the audience to think about that idea, that democracy, at least within the context of terrorism, might present a certain weakness. And I would add, another important distinction I think we do need to make is between Democracy, the system of government where people rule, whether that's representative democracy, direct democracy in the Athenian ideal, or liberal democracy, as we conceive of it here in the US, that also incorporates those freedoms like freedom of speech, association, right to privacy, things of that nature. Because what is so particularly scary about terrorism, especially for a liberal democracy, is something that we actually brought up on our last episode, which is that the trade off in a liberal democracy dealing with the threat of terrorism is that the very same freedoms that we give to every citizen are the ones that allow the terrorist to remain hidden under the cover of law. That it is only once the terrorist commits the act that he has breached the rules of the political community that we've established for ourselves. Many of the cases that we brought up in the last episode really only came to fruition with, say, an undercover FBI agent who took a man who had anti-U.S. sentiments, was feeling discouraged or in some ways marginalized by the community, and offered him the tools and resources he might need to, say, blow up a landmark, even if he never had any intention of doing that in the first place. But it's the very fact that until that action occurs, That person can be a law-abiding citizen and also enjoy the same freedoms that we all do as citizens. That is the trade-off we make. By ensuring the protection of those rights to every citizen in the U.S., we also acknowledge that there are some who could abuse them to do bad things. That tension is one that I think is really worthy of consideration, especially as we choose new political leaders, as we choose people to represent us. In my vision, at least, those people need to be people who represent the ideal of preserving those freedoms, whatever that cost may be, because that is more important, at least in my mind, than giving free reign to others, however they might use them. That's a decision that I think as an individual, we need to decide for ourselves. I would hope the audience considers that as well. And throughout the article, Goss mentions that America, particularly Washington, would prefer democracy in countries in the Middle East for reasons of trade and general peaceful coexistence. But in believing that democracy is the only route, Goss very eloquently points out that in making certain nations more ideal, anti-American sentiment that already exists might become more prominent as various citizens have more political and vocal power to express what is in many cases in my mind very justified sentiment and hostility towards our nation. And so on one hand, I think that might be the U.S. getting what it deserves, and in taking a very militaristic response to terrorism, perhaps all we've done is recruit more enemies for the opposing cause. But I think there is great irony in the belief that in democratizing a country, those democratic voices that will now be heard are those which are going to be 
purely idealistic and also in harmony with those in the U.S. Because as we've mentioned at various points, our cultures are different, our geographic locations are different, our historical bases are different, and the U.S., I believe, for those reasons as well as others, should refrain from, and I would say stop, imposing these democratic ideals that may not necessarily work well with systems that are already in place. But what do you think about that ironic danger, and perhaps others, of U.S.-imposed democracy? Well, I'm glad you brought up that historical basis, in part because this argument about democracy as an antidote to terrorism in some ways reminds me of the Cold War and of a particular war of ideas that the U.S. was waging on many fronts. It was not an overtly militaristic war, but we had things like the U.S. Information Agency, which is a now-closed branch of the U.S. government that was primarily engaged in promoting the values of U.S. government and civilian life, not just political, but also in terms of our culture, through radio, television, and a variety of media outlets. And I think there was a better recognition at that time that it was fundamentally a war of ideas, just as much as it may have been one of nukes and missiles. There seems to be an inkling that that is something that we are facing again today with the rise of modern terrorism. But I'm reminded of a phrase used by a fascinating speaker who I had the opportunity to attend a lecture with, a man named Amos Giora, who was a former counterterrorism director for Israeli intelligence. Talking about drones, he described them as tactically effective, but strategically useless. And what he meant by that was, if you want to take out an individual target, there may be no better weapon to do it with than drones. But strategically, taking the long-form view of things, the generational challenge going forward of, let's say, ending terrorism, if that could be such a world, then every new bomb dropped, every extra individual killed by a drone strike may in fact create two more terrorists and two more people who see that militaristic approach as fundamentally hostile. From the ground, why shouldn't they? Because when we're not doing the job of promoting an alternative and promoting what could be good about the U.S. response and about our culture, Whether or not it is our job to impose it is certainly a question for debate, and I hope one that listeners consider now and in the future. But we have to do a better job of balancing those two, I think. I absolutely agree. Balance is essential in a discussion of such important political ideals and moving forward, perhaps political or other solutions. And as a final point on which I would love your insight, Goss does note in the article, which for those listeners seeking to read it, is accessible through Foreign Affairs Magazine online, that because terrorists are so fundamentally devoted to their causes as to be willing to commit such acts of horrific violence, the introduction of democracy would not necessarily alter their aims or approaches, and in fact, were terrorists of a certain group to find that democratic elections did not satisfy their end goals, they would still likely resort to terrorist activity, and therefore things might not necessarily improve, and it seems might become worse as they target the citizens of their nation in order to continue to pursue a certain ideal or agenda. And I would really like to know what you think about that idea that democracy not only wouldn't stop, but might exacerbate the terrorist issue. 
Well, again, that generational challenge is one that has been ongoing in the Middle East and for many countries. Ultimately, I think it shows that the problem is more political than we often realize, that I think recent advances like the Iranian nuclear deal at least show that there has been willingness to cooperate on the part of governments and to maybe show goodwill that hasn't been there before. But at the very least, the understanding is that there is a political problem in many governments that are currently facing issues of terrorism, whether it's the US or Iraq and Afghanistan. That as terrorism continues to spread in many regions, the issue is not always of establishing an Islamic caliphate in the case of ISIS. In many cases, it is often regional conflicts, civil wars even, that escalate outward because of this perception of terrorism into matters of seemingly global significance. In fact, I think our lens needs to be much more precise because many of these incidents reflect a growing discomfort and one that has been percolating for a long time about the perceived ineffectiveness of government to address fundamental societal ills, be that lack of access to quality healthcare, schooling, any number of things that even we as Americans here in the US are trying to improve through our own political system. We at least have the tools, the resources, and the kind of government that is open to these kinds of critiques and that kind of change when we choose to exercise it. But in governments where those channels are not directly open, people will find other ways of addressing what they see as the biggest problems in their society. And sometimes, when none of those channels that you and I understand are available, violence is the answer that provokes a reaction that gets people involved, engaged, and caring about the issues that even a terrorist actor wants to make known. And democracy may not be the solution only because the broader political problem is one of a fundamental mistrust of government, not necessarily of the system of government that currently exists. And before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to consider after listening to our discussion? Well, I think it's really important to think about some of the themes we've talked about in terms of terrorism being as much a problem with a political solution as a militaristic solution. What, if any, role does the U.S. have to play in a problem that seems rooted in some very particular concerns to the individuals who come out of these countries and for terrorists who see the U.S. as a threat to their way of life and to the basic needs that they have for their families and their communities? We certainly can't sympathize with their tactics, but by understanding what it is that fundamentally motivates them, that may give us a better sense of how we go about addressing the problem. And so I think fundamentally the question is, besides the direct combat role of the U.S., how can we engage people who see our country as fundamentally opposed or antagonistic towards them? How do we fix that bridge that seems to have been so badly burnt? I agree. And I've often seen terrorists as human agents using inhumane methods or tools. And while we often focus on the latter, understandably so, I think we risk dehumanizing those who engage in these acts and I know that many people are inclined to label such individuals evil, fundamentally wrong, crazy, insane, any number of terms. 
Again, understandably so, it does nothing to further discussion nor to understand the basis for fears, concerns, and other feelings of terrorists or the countries and cultures from which they originate. And as I think the article expresses, I find it important to complicate our belief that there is one solution for the problem of terrorism, which, given the diversity of various individuals who have engaged in terrorism, suggests that we need an equally diverse array of tools to respond to terrorist activity. And as with any episode that addresses a politically or socially sensitive issue, I know that various listeners will come to this topic with their own preconceived notions, myself included and Sam you as well, but I hope that listeners will also consider the alternative side, or at least do something to open their minds to different solutions or different approaches to some of the issues that we've discussed. And Sam, with that said, I'd like to thank you for coming on and discussing this with me. Absolutely. Really appreciate you having me back. It was my pleasure. But as ever, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have any feedback, opinions, concerns, or critiques of any kind, please reach out to us. You can contact us via Twitter or Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with someone you think might also enjoy it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.